0: I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And um, I, It seems to me that sometimes we um, come into this time of year and, you know, immediately after the stores take down, you know, put the, the Halloween candy on sale, uh, they've got the, the Christmas stuff out, and and uh, we skip over Thanksgiving. I, I like this one picture I saw. It. They had some of those inflatables. It was a turkey, and in the turkey's hand, he had a sign, and he had a foot up on another inflatable, which was Santa Claus. It says, wait your turn, fat boy. <laughs> and, um, you know, we skip over that Thanksgiving season, I know. But on the other hand, I, I think sometimes we approach this time of year and uh, – we don't allow the account of Christmas to have the dynamic effect that it can have on our lives. And we, we relegate the account of Christmas to one service, right, on Christmas Day or maybe a Christmas Eve service. I'm getting a light from the booth that tells me to turn off that microphone. And um, so I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, I, don't, I don't want that. And I don't want that for you either, that we relegate the account of Christmas to to one to one service. Now that brings me to another thing that I, I think is worthy to address. Was Jesus born on December the 25th? Well, all evidence seems to indicate that he was not. There's a lot of evidence that doesn't. But I want to say this: who cares? Right? I mean, are we really? Here's, here's what I do know. Let me, let me give you that side of it. I do know it's recorded in God's Word. And I do know that the rest of the world recognizes, whether they realize it or not, they get their heads pumped with doctrinal songs. You, know, you walk through the stores this time of year, and it just amazes me. The Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Life and light to all He brings is with healing in his wings. And you're hearing these songs played in the mainstream society, and I don't see anything bad with that. Matter of fact, I look at it and I go praise the Lord, and I look around to see if people recognize what's happening, and they don't. And, you know, almost subliminally, we have this, this opportunity when the rest of the world, or at least I, I can only speak for the United States, I guess, but when the people in the United States of America are... Are celebrating something that we celebrate that's recorded in the word of God and we would, we would rather make a big fuss about it, and we would rather split hairs uh, about whether Jesus was born on December 25th or not, who cares and, and how foolish for us to not capitalize on this time of year when, when, when people are being subliminally programmed with the truth of God's word to not capitalize on that and say hey yeah, and 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 celebrate it along with them to uh, to a point. But here's here's I think where we fail sometimes. And number one, we don't allow the Chris the account of Christmas. I'm, I'm careful to try to not call it the Christmas story because it sounds like a fairy tale. When I talk about Christmas, I'm talking about what God's Word records as the birth of Christ. And you know, there's only one story. There's not varying. There there are uh, you know, uh, two different places at least uh, that we find a record of uh, Christ's birth once in Matthew and again in Luke we find it recorded in both of those. We know that it is recorded in God's Word. But the problem is we don't allow the, the account of Christmas to have a dynamic effect on us. In other words, what I'm saying is why? Why did God put this in His Word? What is God trying to reveal to us about Himself or about the work that He accomplished through Christ by revealing to us um, this account of Christmas, the, the, the coming of Christ, that God became a man, not ever ceasing to be God. Why does he, why does he put that in there and instead of letting it uh, the, the account of Christmas have the dynamic effect on us that it could, by the way, I use that word dynamic in the same sense that the Apostle Paul used it when he said, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power God unto salvation. That word power is translated from a Greek word, uh, dynamis. I probably didn't pronounce it right, but it's where we get our word dynamic, right? Or dynamite. And that's what I'm saying. We don't let the Christmas story have a dynamic effect on our lives. It's an account that's given to us in the Word of God, and it ought to affect some change in our lives as we look to the account, and then we look to the God that gave us the account to see, well, why is it there? What does God want me to learn from this, uh, from this account? And I don't think it deserves just one Sunday. I think it deserves several Sundays. As a matter of fact, uh, you, you know me, if you've been around here for long, that I usually take about eight Sundays to talk about the Christmas story, and we're going to start that today. And my hope is not to wear Christmas out. My hope is not to commercialize Christmas. Uh, my hope is to, uh, to, to be able to preach something and to study something myself and then to bring it to you that will have a dynamic effect in my life this year, that will affect change in my life this year as the rest of the world celebrates the Christmas season. To know God through this time, to know God through these scriptures. Now, I think it's interesting that are we, are we told in God's Word, are we instructed to God's, in God's Word to remember the birth of Christ? Does the word of God say, and you will remember the birth of Christ till I come? Is that what Paul instructed the saints in Corinth? No, he said you'll remember the death of Christ, right? So that leads me to this important point about the account of Christmas. We can never separate the account of Christmas from the account of the cross. Amen? We should never separate the account of Christmas from the account of the cross. And that's one of the wonderful things I think about having the services on Christmas Day that we're going to have. In the morning, we're going to have that Christmas service. We'll sing a lot of the Christmas songs. We'll tell the Christmas story, but then Sunday night, we'll, we'll tie it all together by remembering the Lord's death till He come. We'll not only be telling the story that He came, but we'll tell the story why He came. and We'll get a full picture of that on Sunday, December the 25th. And I hope that, uh, that uh, this season... Uh, will have a dynamic effect in your life. It'll affect change in your life because of what God records in His Word regarding the story, the account, rather, of Christmas. You know, a lot of people this time of year, you ever heard somebody say, we need to put Christ back in Christmas? You ever hear that? You know what I'm more interested in? Putting Christ back in the Christian. And maybe maybe connecting uh, for one time in our lives, maybe connecting during the Christmas holiday for somebody else maybe helping them connect, make the connection between the account of Christmas and the account of the cross and to receive the greatest gift of all, and that is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship with God through him. Amen? You You understand what I'm saying? Now, here's what the difficulty is as a preacher. As a preacher, it's the same account. I mentioned a minute ago, it's recorded in God's Word once in Matthew, and Matthew presents Christ as what? Remember what Andy said on Wednesday night? That was fantastic, by the way. If you'll get that first part of what he talked about and how Christ is presented through the gospel. But Christ is presented in the book of Matthew as king. Remember that? So then we go to the book of Luke where it's recorded again. And we see in the book of Luke that Christ is presented as what? The perfect man. God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. And so the difficulty as a preacher sometimes is you've got the same material to draw from. And so it sounds a bit repetitive, doesn't it? And that's partially why I believe that sometimes something like the account of Christmas 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 becomes a bit uh, non-dynamic. It doesn't carry with it the power that it should because we've sat through a bazillion, if you've grown up in church, you've sat through a bazillion of these types of services where we talk about the birth of Christ and we've got it all up here. but It hasn't had a dynamic effect here. I want to challenge you this season. Don't let it be that way this year. Don't let it be that way. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. I I guess maybe I told you that part because I'm warning you that you've heard these things. But this time, let it have a dynamic effect on you. Let the power of the Word of God affect change in your life. Galatians chapter 4, it's a a Christmas verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse number 4, that we're going to read. Believe it or not, it's a Christmas verse. And that the Word of God says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's a Christmas verse. Did you know that? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that this year the account of Christmas would not be mundane, and that it would have a dynamic effect our lives, that, that it would affect change, Lord. Let us see you in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text states that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. Throughout eternity, God has worked to the exact moment, or God worked to the exact moment, when Christ should be brought into the world. There was a a set time for his birth, and and God worked from eternity through time to bring about his sovereign will. The Word of God describes to us the power and wisdom of God in sending his Son at exactly the right time in human history when it makes this statement, when the fullness of time was come. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I think one of the things that it means that the, the fullness of time was uh, the time when it was exactly right religiously. The preparation for the fullness of time can be found way back in the Babylonian captivity. Excuse me, I'm going to mute this. Dealing with some seasonal things, right? But the preparation... Well, oh, the fullness of time can be found way back, I believe, in the Babylonian captivity when there was this inexpressible sadness that swept over Israel, in particular Judah, after the Jews' temple was destroyed, their faith was laid waste, and their people were carried into captivity. Now, we've been talking about uh, the the backside of this on Sunday nights. So despite the sorrow, the, despite the sorrow that, that the uh, Jews felt or expressed uh, during that time of captivity, three wonderful things occurred. Three wonderful things came out of that captivity, uh, what we've been talking about on Sunday nights, about the returns. Remember, Uh, we're studying the book of Ezra, uh, and the people returned to uh, set the uh, uh, altar upon its bases and rebuild the temple. But let me tell you about three wonderful things that happened when the Jews came out of uh, that captivity. And the first thing was is that the Jewish people became monotheistic. That is a wonderful thing that came out of that captivity. Never again will you find that the Jewish people turned to idols from the living God. Never again. And so that's one. That's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, that out of that that captivity if there was one thing that was accomplished that would be a good thing that they never again turned to idolatry and became monotheistic a a second thing that came out of the captivity was the very beginning of the uh, canon of the holy scriptures now i'm telling you this is the infantile stages of uh, the canonization of the scriptures if you'll remember from Sunday nights, we've talked about this, but the first wave of Jews who returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, remember? He set up the altar upon his bases and began rebuilding the temple. Uh, the efforts of those who made that first return uh, stalled for over a decade, but then under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, the work began again, and the work of, eventually the work of rebuilding the temple was complete. Almost 60 years later, God called Ezra, whose book we're studying, uh, to lead a second return to Jerusalem. And that group was reinforced about a dozen years after that by a third return led by Nehemiah. Now, after Nehemiah had led that third return and the walls had been repaired around the holy city, um, uh, Ezra gathered together the holy writings of God's people And God's people, along with Ezra and those that were leading them, uh, poured over those scriptures seeking to find the holy promises that God had sworn to Israel. And you can find this account in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verses 1 through 8. Uh, Maybe just uh, turn back there and we'll uh, just uh, begin to look at it very quickly. Uh, In the book of uh, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah. Before Psalms, Nehemiah chapter 8, right? We'll just take a a look at this, mark it down later, read the whole thing. It says, "...and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring forth the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had, uh, had commanded to Israel." Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, uh, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month, and he read therein uh, before the congregation. They were all gathered together in the street. And so you can read about all of that account uh, on your own time later on, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. But that was the beginning, that which is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, was the beginning of the... Uh, maybe a better word, reassembly of the holy scriptures into one volume, and we're going to uh, talk about some about that in just a minute as well, because we're going to see what happened after that one when, when those holy scriptures were uh, assembled together into one volume, uh, and and what developed from there uh, when the fullness of time was come. Thirdly, the third thing that came out of the captivity was the institution of uh, it's a Greek word, ecclesia. It's a local assembly. So the Jews became monotheistic. Uh, it was the infancy of the canonization of the, of the Holy Scriptures. And then thirdly, the institution of the local assembly. And so after the temple had been destroyed, where are God's people going to worship? Right? And so uh, wherever they were locally, they gathered together in local assemblies. That's, that's what we have today. We have an ecclesia, Wherever the Jew went and wherever the local assembly was established, they carried with them the blessed expectancy of the messianic hope that they found in scriptures such as Isaiah 9 and verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Right? So those are the three wonderful things that came out of the captivity uh, of uh, of the nation of Israel. And so we see that when God says the fullness of time was come, the time for for God to come into this earth, for Christ to come into this earth was perfect religiously. they They were waiting for it to happen. They were expecting for it to take place, right? So the time was exactly right religiously, they had it all assembled together. They were monotheistic. They had the Holy Scriptures assembled together in one place, and they were gathering together in local assemblies with the blessed expectancy that Messiah would come. The time was exactly right, religiously. The fullness of time was come. God sent forth His Son. Number two, the time was right culturally. There's a brilliant general and statesman in Macedonia, who had a son that was even more gifted and more world-famous than him. Now, you might have heard of his son's name. His given name was Alexander, but he earned the title Alexander the Great after conquering the world and completely changing its cultural, intellectual, and philosophical concepts. When Alexander the Great marched his armies through the Mediterranean nations, he carried with him a teacher named, does anybody know this teacher's name? Is a Greek philosopher named Aristotle. Everywhere he went, Aristotle went with him. And wherever they went, they established Greek institutions. You say, why is that important? Well, let me try to explain. After Alexander the Great died at 33 years old, by the way, he did a lot in a short life. Died at 33 years old, his influence carried on and furthered the Greek culturalization. The whole earth from one side to the other became solidly Greek. Greek institutions, Greek philosophy, Uh, Greek art, Greek drama, Greek literature, and above all, the Greek language, which became the business language of the civilized world for hundreds and hundreds of years. During this time of the advancement of the Greek Greek culture, uh, Greek scholars translated the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures into the Greek language. Remember what we said about the canonization, the infancy of the canonization of the Scriptures? They took those first five books of the Bible. And they uh, began, and and other uh, books of what we enjoy as part of our Bible today, they they translated those Hebrew scriptures into, guess what language? Greek. And those Greek translations are the first scriptures which the first Christian missionaries would have held in their hands when they were scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world. And they say, well, why was it important that they carried Greek translations? What did I just say about Greek culturalization? That the whole world from one side, a whole civilized world, from one side to the other was was familiar with the Greek culture and most importantly as it it pertains to the written word of God, they were familiar with the Greek language. So that everywhere they went, when they were scattered throughout the greco Roman world, because of the persecution that fell on Jerusalem, the message that they carried was in a message in a language which was familiar to those that they went to. You see, the time was right, not just religiously, but it was right culturally, those Christians who were scattered abroad going everywhere preaching the word as we see in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, eventually they were pretty industrious people. Carrying around those scrolls was a difficult thing and so uh, they would eventually take those scrolls and cut their pages into uniform lengths and bind them together so that it would be easier uh, to turn to a specific text and prove that the Lord Jesus Christ was, in fact, Messiah. It had a binding. And that was the work of those first century Christians who carried about those Greek translations of the Holy Scriptures that had been assembled years and hundreds of years before when Ezra stood in the street and proclaimed to the people of God the words of God. You see, the time wasn't just right religiously. The time was right culturally. All of it was done in Greek. The language of the world was Greek. The scriptures that they carried were Greek translations. The message that they proclaimed from one side of the Roman Empire to the other was delivered in Greek. When Paul wrote his letter to Rome, he didn't write it in Latin, he wrote it in Greek. When John wrote his letters to the seven churches of Asia that we find in Revelation, he didn't write them in the languages of Mystia or Cappadocia or Bithynia. He wrote them in Greek. And little did Alexander the Great realize that while he was busy conquering the world, he was preparing a universal language so that everybody everywhere could have the opportunity to hear about the goodness of God and the gift of his Son when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his Son. By the way, just as an add-on, isn't it interesting as one empire falls another rises and what's the business language of the world today? English. I've never been anywhere in the world and I've been around the world twice that I couldn't find somebody who did not speak English. Could it be that God has preserved his word in the English language for the christian nation to get out the christian message to a pagan world it's a universal language i see god doing that that's a a little bit beyond the scope of what i'm trying to show you here when the fullness of time was come the time was exactly right religiously the time was exactly right culturally but you know the time was exactly right politically listen to this at the time of christ rome had conquered the whole civilized earth Right, And it was bound together by Roman roads. Bound together by Roman roads. A lot of people don't realize this, but those Roman roads extended from Great Britain to India. And merchants could travel, people could go from place to place, and over those Roman roads, get this, the first missionaries traveled bearing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome was bound together, Uh, you may not realize this, you may have heard this before, but Rome was bound together by the best postal delivery system the world had ever known up to that time. Letters could be written, sent from place to place, city to city, province to province. Most importantly, from church to church. And over those Roman roads were carried the first letters to the first churches. Original copies of the books that make up over half of our New Testament. Those letters were carried. The Roman world was a world of peace. Now, you might laugh about that. Granted, it was a world of peace by Rome's iron fist, but it was still a world of universal peace. Historically, we know that around the time of the birth of Christ, there was no war going on in the world. Little did Caesar who sat on the emperor's throne at the time of Christ's birth, realized that what he was about to do was under the sovereign leadership of Almighty God. Now let me show you a a seeming contradiction in the word of God. Would you like to see that in the book of Luke? uh, In Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26, we find in in that verse that, that an angel Gabriel was sent to a place called Galilee. Now Galilee... I'm, I'm sorry, he wasn't sent. Well, it was Galilee. It was a town in Galilee called Nazareth. In uh, Luke chapter 1, verse number 26. Luke 1 26 says says, uh, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. You see that? You're familiar with that story, right? This is an announcement uh, that um, the Lord Jesus was going to be born. And this announcement was given to Mary. Uh, and uh, we see that there. So, you say, why is that a problem? Well, because in the, in the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse number 2, it said that Christ should be born in Bethlehem. Now, you've got to use your, your geography. Geography, right? How many of you like geography in school? I'm going to give you a little geography lesson. Now, where does Luke, chapter 1 and verse number 26, where, where was the announcement made? christ should be born nazareth of galilee right we agree so nazareth galilee but where did micah the prophet hundreds of years before that say that christ should be born bethlehem bethlehem well what presents to us the problem is the distance between these two cities Now, don't you love the internet? I I do. I've never done this before, but I I was able to look up on Google Maps the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem, and it actually gave an answer. According to Google Maps, it takes two hours and 44 minutes by car to make the 150.9-kilometer trip. That's about 94 miles for you English-speaking people, via the Yitzhak Rabin Highway. There's actually a highway named after, I think it was uh, Israel's fifth prime minister, uh, who was assassinated in 1995. He uh, served a term in the 70s, and then I know a second term in the, in the 90s when he was assassinated in 1995. It's Route 6 in Israel. And according to, to, to Google Maps, by car, it takes two hours and 44 minutes to make that 94-mile trip. So you see the problem? The announcement was made that Christ was going to be born where? Nazareth. Where was Christ born? Or what, where was the prophecy of Christ's birth supposed to take place? Bethlehem, 94 miles apart. And they didn't have cars in those days. They had to bump along those Roman roads... On a mule! And not even that, my understanding is uh, that it's the terrain was just nearly impassable. Just an amazing trip that they had to take. But here's where we find the conflict resolved. And it's in a kind of a strange place. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1 where the Word of God says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. Now, you might be saying, well, how does that resolve the distance problem between where Gabriel made the announcement that Christ should be born, that was Nazareth, and where Micah the prophet said he should be born, way down 94 miles, you never go down to Jerusalem, I, I should say way up in uh, Bethlehem. Where? Uh, how does that resolve by... Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1, which tells us, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Well, I'll explain that to you. A decree from the leader of the world power imposing a tax and a census. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, That all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And then uh, note verse number 4 And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem. And Caesar never realized, nor could he have ever guessed, that what he did was in the sovereign purpose of God. You see, the time was right religiously. The time was right culturally, but the time was also right politically. Politically. And God put all of it into motion. And that decree that that political leader made really was something that allowed God to fulfill His divine plan and purpose when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth His Son. Not only was the time right religiously, not only was the time right culturally, and not only was it right politically, But the time was right eternally. Before the foundation of the world, before the three-in-one God spoke the universe into existence with its stars and its spheres and its systems, preparations had already been made. Somewhere in the portals of eternity past, before God made the world, there was a a session, as it were, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one God. Before there was a yesterday or tomorrow, and there's just an eternal now with God, he saw Adam's fallen race. And it was there, according to the word of God, that the Savior, the prince of glory, agreed to become a man and a sacrifice and an atonement for our sin. And Revelation 13, 8 refers to him and describes him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Listen to this. I had this thought. And I've got to confess, I don't know if I heard this somewhere else and I just forgot where I heard it or if, it came, if I made this up or, you know, I guess if I forgot, I can claim, you know, rights to it, right? God became a child of man so that we might become the children of God. Isn't that amazing? There's a transaction that was made. It's the idea of redemption. We miss that sometimes as Christians, that we're a purchased possession. Did you know that? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior, as your only hope of relationship with God and home in His presence for eternity? You know, you're a purchased possession. That's something I've been talking about with several fellows from the church, but why was it so important? Why was it so important that Jesus be God? Right? Why was it so important that Jesus be God? And the answer to that is because Because it was God's transaction. See, he bought the rights to it. He purchased the title. Because the title's in his name. And so, God sent forth his son, right? When the fullness of time was come. God became a child of man so that we might become the children of God. The time was right. It was right. Religiously, culturally, politically, and eternity. There was a fixed point in time when God entered this world in a human body to bleed and die for the sins of all mankind. God's intent is for all people everywhere to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, and then by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit allow Christ to be formed in them. God's intent was to reconcile mankind to himself, and it's so important that Jesus was God because it was God's transaction. Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God himself had to make the purchase. That's why. We could talk of Christ being the perfect sacrifice, and he was. We could talk about many different things about reasons why that might be true but the the bottom line is this is that God had had to redeem us God had to buy us back mankind back and so it had to be God that made the transaction that provided the means by which wrath could be satisfied and he did that in the person of Christ isn't that amazing? And for all of eternity, God knew that that was going to have to go that way. didn't take God by surprise. You see, it's so hard for us to really understand all this because of the things that bind us. We're bound by time, aren't we? We're bound by space. We're bound by matter. But the God who made us is not. God made time. And that he said in the evening and the morning were the first day. God made space. I love the almost nondescript way in which the Bible talks about how God made the sun and the moon. And that he tags on this little sentence, oh yeah, and he made the stars also. God's just, it's an amazing thing to to sit down and try to, to contemplate that. That as far as we can go, as far as we can see out into the expanse of the universe, God lives outside of it. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He's not bound by matter. You know, by faith we believe that the things we see We're made from things that don't appear. God spoke it into existence. So somehow we have to try to wrap our minds around this infinite God. Our little finite minds need to wrap themselves around an infinite God who knew that the time was right. The time was right religiously. He had set everything in place for it to be right religiously. He had allowed those Jews to be carried off into captivity. And out of that ki- captivity came monotheism, the infancy of the canonization of the scriptures, and we understand now more uh, greatly how important that is, and then the establishment of the local assembly. And God knew the time was right, uh, not just uh, religiously, but he knew it was right culturally. He knew of a man that was going to be born a, a, a statesman from Macedonia, who would conquer the earth and further the Greek cultural, uh, culturalization and its arts and its dramas and its, uh, you know, different things. Maybe the Greek food, I don't know. I haven't studied that part of it. But most importantly, the Greek language, which became the business language of the world. The time was right culturally, the time was right politically. When God knew that He had sent the, His messenger to the city of Nazareth to make the announcement to that. That woman, that virgin Mary, that Christ should be born. And by the way, we'll talk about this more later. A lot of people get some pretty strange ideas about how, how all that took place. How can a virgin conceive? They come up, they conjure up all kinds of, uh, of things about how that happened. And quite frankly, some of them are just downright perverted. If God spoke the world into existence, he can speak a child into existence in his mother's womb. That's the simplicity of it. I don't think we should overcomplicate things. And he knew the time was right because he put in a political leader's heart to make a decree for a census and a decree for everybody to pay their taxes that would move that virgin who uh, had conceived by the Holy Ghost to move her 94 miles down the Yitzhak-Rabin Highway, a place called Bethlehem. Not only that, but most importantly, the time was right eternally. I hope that that this message makes that verse deeper to you than it ever has before. And that this little introduction about the account of Christmas will have a more dynamic effect in your life, that there's a sovereign God in heaven. Who knew that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. It's a great way to introduce the Christmas story, don't you think? To introduce this idea, not only that Christ came, but then to introduce why he came. To redeem mankind to himself. To purchase mankind back. As your eyes are closed, the piano will play a hymn of invitation. I hope that in the quietness of your heart, you'll find a place for God, that you'll look to him. That you'll realize that, just as there was a divine purpose and a divine time for God to work as He worked in Galatians 4:4, as we see He worked in Galatians 4:4, that you would realize there's a divine purpose and plan that He has to work in your life at this very moment. Could it be that maybe? God brought you to this place and had you hear this message this morning to realize that just as His sovereign plan came in the fullness of time Christ became a man without ever ceasing to be God could it be that He met you at this moment in time so that you might place your faith and trust in His provision I mean my goodness if God went to those lengths to redeem you, to buy you back to himself. Doesn't it only make sense that you would, you would surrender to that, yield to that, become a child of God? The world likes to say we're all the children of God, my friend. As we find that actually in the book of Galatians, one chapter before. But that's not the truth. The world's lying. We're not all the children of God. Word of God says we're all the children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. That's the only way to become a child of God. That's the only way to, to allow the plan of God when the fullness of time has come and sending forth His Son to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of His wrath to make the transaction to redeem mankind to Himself. He's the only way. Why don't you receive Him today? believing that he is God in the flesh, believing that His, the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary was enough. Maybe you're here this morning, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. Would you, would you make a determination this morning to not allow this season to pass with, without letting the story, the account that's told regarding the birth of Christ, would you allow it to have a dynamic effect in your life? Would you ask God for that? God, let this year be the year that if change is affected in my life because of the wonderful message of Christ. And give me the courage, Lord, to tell somebody to attach or connect the account of the birth of Christ with the account of His death, why He came. However the Lord may lead you. Let's pray.